The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. If you'll open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 3. It's been quite a while since we've been in this chapter. Uh, we've missed, a, missed some time, so I don't know how much you're going to recall of what's gone on before, so I'm just going to just kind of briefly touch on some things that, as I usually do that we've talked about, and uh, I hope that you'll be able to catch on and get into the flow of uh, what I want to say to you tonight. And I do hope that you enjoy uh, this study. I, I do, because I really like to get into the Word of God and just find out all that I can about the wonderful salvation that we have in Christ. And we're in here one of the more difficult parts of the book of Galatians, really in the entire scriptures. Um, in this part of the book, there are verses here that are just full of controversy, uh, just all kinds of interpretations that you find about these verses. Uh, someone has uh, several Theologians have identified more than 400 interpretations of verse 20 alone. And so um, due to time, I'm only going to tell you about 250 of those. Uh, it take me too long to get through 400 of them. But uh, we, we sometimes take a long time getting through scriptures. You may think, well, that's what I'm doing. Just see how long I can drag it out. But my greatest difficulty is cutting things off and saying, well, that's enough about that verse. Let's move on to something else because there's just so much depth in the Word of God. But that's what study is. It's not skip, hop, and jump through different portions of Scripture. It's a steady approach to the Word of God, going a little bit deeper all the time. And I hope that you understand that before you ever come on a Wednesday night service, that we're going to do something that uh, hopefully will get us into God's Word. And I think all the members of the church need that. It's too bad that there are so few people here on a Wednesday night because we would be so much enriched as a, as a church if people did something other than just reading a few chapters in the Bible a week and then hurrying through those when they do it. Uh, the Bible is where you're going to get your strength. That, that's where your strength for the Christian life comes from. Well, let's go to the scriptures here, and we're going to resume our study tonight and looking at verse 15, verses 15 through 22. So starting in verse number 15, the apostle says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scriptures hath concluded all under sin 
that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that you that believe. Now, I'd like you to look at the 18th verse in which Paul says, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, as you know, in, in this scripture, what we're dealing with in the book of Galatians, as we've talked about so much, concerns the way that we are justified with God. And so the great doctrine that just consumes the entire book of, of Galatians is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that is the key battleground over the ways that, that people think that they can be saved, the, the key battleground over, over the way of salvation that's proffered by all of the religions of the world. All of the ideas in all of the religions of the world's religions are reduced to two ways of salvation. Either we are justified by faith through Jesus Christ alone or we're justified by our works. So the Bible doesn't really have to go through the belief systems of all the major religions point by point and explaining each of those and affirming or refuting the different points of these many different religions. All that we really have to do is look at one core belief in Scripture, and that is the doctrine of justification. So I don't have to tell you all of the ins and outs of Hinduism and Islamicism and Buddhism and Mormonism and all the other isms that are out there. It might be interesting to look at some of the individual things that they believe, and some of their beliefs are very strange. I mean, you might be interested in finding out about what the Mormons think about their holy underwear. You might want to know about that doctrine, or you might want to know about their practice, their 24-7 practice of baptizing people in their temples, running them through baptistries in, in order to baptize people for the dead and try to get them into heaven. Now, those doctrines may be interesting to us, but if we really want to get to the bottom of all of it, their foundation is in the doctrine of justification by works. And so we can throw all of that stuff out because it has no foundation in Scripture. But more particularly, we can throw them out because they deny the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, which is justification through faith, uh, by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So on one side, you have this, this huge mountain of all the religions of the world and all the belief systems and opinions of people that reach almost to the sky, and all of those religions are based in a work salvation. And then on the other side, you have just one. You have one. And that's the religion of Jesus Christ. And that's the one that says that we are justified by faith only. So I don't have to examine the doctrines of this pile over here to find out whether these people are true or not. I only have to look at one thing, one doctrine. What do they think about how a person is justified with God? That's what determines whether or not they're Christian. So we, we, we look at it that way. Even among in, in this wide diversity of people that claim to be Christians, we go to what they say about the doctrine of justification. And many people in other denominations are saved. Certainly they're not all Baptist. We may have differences of opinions about uh, some of the doctrines of, of the Word of God, but there is no true Christian who is going to differ on this doctrine. You can't be a Christian and differ about how a person is justified in the eyes of God. Now, in this section then, 
The Apostle Paul gives us the two major theological positions. On one side, you have salvation by grace, and that's represented by Abraham. And then on the other side, you have salvation by the law, or salvation by works, and that's represented by Moses. And those two opposing ideas of justification are the difference between or being saved by grace or law. Now, Moses represents one, Abraham represents the other, but that doesn't mean that Moses and Abraham are in disagreement with one another. The problem is with the interpretation of people who try to take Moses or take Abraham as opposed to Moses or Moses, whichever. That's the problem. It's not those two men. So Moses represents the law. And whenever you inject the law into justification, then the purpose of the law is corrupted. And so in the 18th verse, Paul said, if the inheritance is by the law, it cannot be a promise. And then he says, but God gave it by promise. Now his reference there is to the inheritance of the promised land. But the wider application is to the inheritance of heaven, the promised land of heaven, which is one and the same as our salvation in Jesus Christ, or the promise of salvation. So that's what we're dealing with here. And we looked at two areas of discussion in the previous messages. We looked at, number one, the link between Abraham and Moses. And that would be the historical link between the two and the theological link between them. We don't have time to get into that tonight. We've already covered it. Then we also talked about another part of Paul's argument, and that's number two, that the law does not annul the promise. And so as an example, Paul uses the validity of human contracts. He says if human contracts are upheld so that you can't change them unless the parties agree to a change, how much more does God's contracts or God's covenant remain sure and steadfast and cannot change? Now, we call that an a fortiori argument, which is really just an argument from, from, uh, an argument from stronger reason, and that's what Paul is using there. Then he also uses another argument here, and that's the preciseness of Scripture. And, and I call that the singularity argument, and that's based upon two words, seed and seeds, in verse number 16. And Paul, in that verse, points out the connection between Genesis 3.15, which is, I hope all of you know, the proto-evangelium, the promise of the Messiah, the first promise that we have in Scripture, Genesis 3.15, and he makes the connection between that promise and the promise that's made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 17. And the Genesis promise was actually, if you remember, spoken to Satan. That promise was spoken to Satan, but the beneficiaries of it were Adam and Eve and everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul connected that to Abraham to show that the promise of the Father, the real promise of the Father, is actually a promise that's made to Jesus Christ. So all of the promises that you find in the Bible, the positive promises of God for his people, are actually to Jesus Christ himself, his own son. And the reason that Paul makes that argument is because if that promise is made to Jesus... If it's his promise, and we receive the benefits of his promise, then certainly nothing that we could ever do could make that promise more sure than it is. We're not going to be able to affect the outcome of a promise that God has made to his own son. And then we discuss the antiquity argument. Paul argued 
uh, about this promise that's made to Abraham and says that it was in effect for hundreds of years before Moses ever appeared on the scene. And he could have gone back 2,500 years before that, all the way to Adam, because the way that people have been saved has always been the same. It never changes. But Paul didn't go back that far. He just went back to Abraham, who's the father of the Jewish nation. He's dealing with the Judaizers, and he deals with Abraham, with Moses, and the giving of the law. And that shorter time between Abraham and Moses suffices to make his argument. Well, we're going to go on tonight and consider verse number 19 and uh, the verses that follow that. I'm really not going to have any, any time to get beyond verse 19. And that brings us to point number three in our outline. And number three is the law accentuates the need of the promise. Now, Paul begins verse number 19, Wherefore then serveth the law? Well, we've come to the time for Paul to straighten everybody out and to show the real reason that God gave the law. Now, to the Jews, as you know, we've studied so much about this uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. To the Jews, the law is the undergirding of their salvation. They placed all of their hope in the law. And what Paul has done in these preceding verses is destroy their whole basis of salvation. He's taken away the law as the foundation of their justification. And so the obvious question then becomes, why did God give us the law? Or more pointedly, these Judaizers would say, Paul, you are against the law. There is no room for the law in your system. So why did God give us the law? What's the purpose of it? Now, to the Jews, folks, to say that the law has no purpose, which is what they had in their minds, is utter blasphemy. How could you have in your sights... What happened so many years before this on Mount Sinai? How could you think about reading the word of God and seeing what God did on Mount Sinai with Moses and and to see that scene described and think that that means nothing at all? Now, I want you to go to Exodus chapter 19, if you would, and here this scene is described as God gets ready to meet with Israel out at Mount Sinai. And there were some very strange things that happened there. Now, in Exodus chapter 19, we're going to start at verse number 9. And previous to that, God has let Moses know that I want you to get the people prepared because I'm going to come and meet with them. So here we are in Exodus 19, verse 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you go not up into the mountain, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives, 
And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. Now, you, you read that, then you have to know this was a very solemn occasion for Israel. Now, previously, God would show up to Israel in a miracle. I mean, that's the way God would show himself. He, he, would, he, he showed up in the plagues that he brought upon Egypt. He would show up at the parting of the Red Sea. And then when they got across the Red Sea, then he showed up at the waters of Merah and made the, made the waters sweet when they were thirsty. He showed up when they were hungry, and he brought quail and, and, the, and the manna down from heaven. But this time, God's going to do something different. God will give a special manifestation of his presence. He would come to Mount Sinai and he told Moses, get the people ready for my presence. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Get them them ready. Make them wash their clothes. Tell the men to stay away from their wives. You tell them that I'm coming to this mountain in a cloud and they're not to touch the mountain. They're not to put their hands on it. And if they touch it, they'll be killed. Don't touch it lest you die. Now, folks, you have to think that the Jews telling this story over and over for all these centuries had to think that this is one of the most significant things that ever happened in the history of the world. Something hugely profound has happened or is about to happen when Moses went up on that mountain to meet with God. And so Moses went up on the mountain and he met with God. And when he came back, His face shone with the glory of God. It reflected the light of God's presence. So Moses had to cover his face because he blinded the people when he came down from the mountain. Well, what happened on that mountain? Well, that's where God gave the Ten Commandments. But that's not all that God did. It's not all that he gave. He gave the plans for the tabernacle. He established on that mountain the whole makeup of the Jewish system of worship. There he gave them the way that they were to worship and to approach the one true God. He showed them how he must be approached. And they learned some very hard lessons about how to approach God. They learned about the keeping of commandments. And you know the story. God killed a lot of them in the wilderness, didn't he? The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, remember that? God said, well, he wasn't very pleased with them. Whew, what a gross understatement. He killed all of them, but two. I mean, all of them that were 20 years older, 20 years and older, he killed all of them, but two. And Paul said he wasn't very happy with them. Well, he wasn't, that's for sure. Now, the, the, the Jews thinking about that, man, this, this is something. Uh, the law has to be something. This is very, very important. And so all throughout Israel's history, they revered God's law. Blessings and cursings are tied to the performance of the law. And so whenever ever Israel sinned, what did they do? They went back to keeping the law. When God wasn't happy, they went back to keeping the law. They started to obey what God said. Now you fast forward a thousand years from the time of Moses to Nehemiah, And by then, the northern tribes of Israel have been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. They've been dispersed, so they have no identity anymore. You can't find the ten tribes anymore. 
The southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin have been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And now God is about to restore Israel. But how did they get to where they were? Why were the ten tribes gone? Why were the two tribes gone? Why? Because they abandoned the law. They didn't keep God's law. So they perverted the worship that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And they didn't keep the Sabbath. And pay attention. They didn't give their tithes. They didn't pay their tithes. They made a mockery of the priesthood and the sacrifices. Now they kept doing those things, but not for the right reasons. So what did God do? Took the sacrifices away from them. Took the temple away from them. Took their land away from them. But God is still a God of promise. Now Israel was not going to do anything about coming back to God by themselves. So God had to do something for them. So he made the first move. And when God brought the people back into the land, what did they do? They returned to the obedience to the law. Now when you get time, you might want to look at Nehemiah chapter 9. And there it says that the, that the people separated themselves. Now they're coming back from captivity in Babylon. And the people separated themselves from all the strangers. They assembled together with fasting. And they had sackcloth on them. And what did they do? Well, it says in that chapter that for six hours they stood there and read the book of the law. For six hours, they listened to the priest reading out of the book of the law. And the next six hours, they stood there and confessed their sins and then bowed themselves before God. Why? Because of the law. They transgressed God's law. Now, what I've given you here is just a brief summary of 1,500 years of Israel's history, going from Moses all the way to Paul. And you know what happened in all that time? The law just kept getting stronger. The law just kept getting to be a bigger piece of Israel's life. The law came to the place where that was the way of salvation to the Jews. That's how they regarded the law. Now what Paul has done, he's just blown up their way of salvation. So they can't look back at Mount Sinai and see that quaking mountain that's covered with smoke and Moses shining with the glory of God and think, well, none of it really mattered. It didn't make any difference. Let's forget about the law. Let's try some other way. And that's what they thought Paul was trying to teach. This is what they had in their mind when Paul was teaching justification by faith alone. And when Paul went to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, he went into the temple. And he was spotted there by some Jews that came from Asia. And they knew what Paul had been teaching. He'd been teaching this doctrine of justification by faith. And they heard that he had preached to Gentiles and told them that salvation is by grace through faith. And they heard him tell the Gentiles that circumcision profits you nothing. There's no point in you being circumcised. You don't need that. So they saw Paul going into the temple in Jerusalem. And they thought that he brought an uncircumcised Gentile into the temple with him. Now pay attention to what transpired. Acts chapter 21. And when the seven days were almost ended... And if you read that, you'll find that's talking about the seven days of a vow that Paul had taken and, and his purification. So when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place." And further brought Greeks also into the temple and have polluted this holy place. 
Now, do you see that? They said, this man teaches all men everywhere against the Jews and the law and the temple. This is the man who's trying to destroy our whole nation and what it's built on. Now, do you notice that? Against the people, against the law, and against the temple. You know what that is? All of that is the summation of their way of salvation. They were saved, they thought, because they were the people. They were the ones descended from Abraham. That was their boast. We are children of Abraham. We are Abraham's seed. And they were saved because they had the law. Nobody else had the law. Only Israel had the law. And they were saved because they had the temple. Because the temple's the only place you can make sacrifices. The Gentiles don't have the temple. And so all of those things, that is their salvation. And their opinion here is that Paul has thrown all of that aside. All of it's gone. All that's represented in the law, Paul throws it all away and he says, it does not matter. The law is no good for anything, so just toss it aside and don't worry about it. That's what's behind verse number 19 in our text. Now, Paul has spent all the previous verses pitting this promise of Abraham against the laws of Moses, and he knows already what's running through their minds. They're fuming at what he says because they don't understand his true opinion of the law. Paul hasn't gotten to the explanation of what he really thinks about the law. What is the real reason for it? And they're going to find out that Paul had actually more respect for the law than they did. And that's because he had reverence for the law because he was honest with it. He wasn't a pretender to the law like they were. He saw it correctly. And he wanted to put the law exactly where it belongs and in the place where it brings God the most excellent glory. And so what he wanted was the glory of God to shine in the face of Moses and be God's glory and not man's. They were looking for their own glory. So all along, these Judaizers had misrepresented Paul's opinion of the law. He's not anti-law. He just wants the law to be in the place where God intended it to be. So he's going to show them how great the law really is when it's taught correctly. And I hope that you understand this when we're through with this, this, this how important that the law is. You know, there are many Christians that, that sing that song. I think you're probably familiar with it. I'm not under law. I'm under grace. And they no more understand that song than the Jews did the Apostle Paul. Grace to them becomes an excuse to sin. Now, Paul knew that there would be some people who didn't understand the the purpose of the law in salvation. And there would be those that became Christians and they wouldn't understand what the law or how the law related to them in their Christian life. Now, I think most of them probably weren't saved, but there were some, some ones that were honest about it. They, they just didn't know how important the law was to them. And I, and I uh, um, see this because I become deeply frustrated sometimes when I preach and the warnings that I give people just sail over everybody's heads. People act like they don't even hear what you're saying. There was a Puritan by the name of William Garnall who who, uh, wrote a book entitled The Christian in Complete Armor. And it's based on Ephesians 6.16 in which Paul said, Above all, taking the shield of faith 
wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And for 1,200 pages, Gurnall goes on about this warfare that we have against Satan and how a Christian has to defend himself. And he's talking about taking on the whole armor of God. But you know when I preach, sometimes I think the members of the church have on bulletproof vests. And it's not because they, they are trying to ward off the attacks of Satan and they don't want any, Satan's dart to penetrate their vest. They're afraid that the law of God's going to penetrate their vest. They're afraid the law of God is going to come in and keep them from doing what they want to do. And so what they do is they live on the edge of their Christianity. They dabble in sin, sometimes even immersing themselves in sin. And they have this thought, I've been saved by grace and The law no longer matters. And those are modern-day Judaizers, in a sense. They don't understand what Paul taught about the law. He didn't abandon the law. He put the law back into the place that God intended. Now, he'll show us that the law is great. You need the law. Listen to me. You need the law because the truth of it is, without the law, you would never know that you needed Jesus Christ. You would never understand that. Maybe you don't understand it all right now. And uh, you won't probably don't understand most of these verses until we get to the explanation of them. But the end of the law will be this. That Mount Sinai quakes exceedingly because God intended to save your soul and he's going to use the law to do it. Does that sound contradictory? We'll stick around and see why that's not. We, we, we can never be justified by the law, but there's never a person that's saved without it. Why isn't that a contradiction? You can never be justified by it, but you can never be saved without it. John Stott wrote, He, he's referring to Paul, he was far from declaring the law unnecessary, for he was quite clear that it had an essential part to play in the purpose of God. The function of the law was not to bestow salvation, however, but to convince men of their need of it. And that statement is the subject of this third point of this, of this message. The law accentuates the need of the promise. Now, I have three subtopics that we need to explore under this, and I don't even have time to get to the first one to finish it or anything. So I'm going to surprise you, and we're going to wind the lesson down. And what I'm trying to get to tonight is to get you to understand how huge that the difference is between Paul and the Judaizers on this issue of the law of God. His doctrine stands against not only these Jews, but it stands against all the other religions of the world. It's Paul against the entire world on this one doctrine. And he's even against many that are in the party that are called Christians. You see, these Judaizers, they're not full-blown Christian haters. I mean, they don't want to stamp out Christianity altogether, at least not in the outward intentions, but actually that's what it's going to lead to. That's where their doctrine will lead because it's fueled by Satan. So they don't appear to be against Christianity. These are people that are supposed to be in the camp. They're in the guise of Christianity. They call themselves Christians. They claim the cross. They claim the resurrection. They claim the ascension of Christ. All of it outwardly appears to be good, but the inward reality is they all still have the devil's religion. It's the same thing that first found its expression in fig leaves. 
all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam made fig leaves to cover his sin. So it didn't take long for that to become the world's religion because the sinful nature after Adam's sin reared its ugly head in the first generation when Cain killed his brother Abel. So all right then, that's the religion of the world. Now let's think back for just a moment to Mount Sinai. God met with Israel and there he gave them their instructions for worship. And so what he was doing is getting them all lined up because waiting for them across the border in Canaan was an enemy that was in full swing of the devil's religion. The Canaanites were the absolute worst of all the nations of the world and God was determined to drive out that false worship and the false gods so that his people could inherit the land of promise. Now folks, this is the entire theme of the Bible. What did Jesus Christ do to bring you out from under the condemnation of the law and make it possible for you to live in the promised land of heaven? That's what the Bible's all about. What did Christ do for you to get you into his promised land? So you're not under law, you're under grace, that's true. But let's come back next time and let's look at it some more and let's really understand what is the purpose of the law? Why did God give it? And Paul has a great explanation for us to see how wonderful that God's law really is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to spend in your word tonight. What, what magnificent passage this is. And just, we're just barely touching on the surface of it now and uh, anxious to get in to find out all these things that the Apostle Paul says. It's worthy of our attention because this is the central, uh, this is the central issue in all of Christianity, what we're talking about tonight. We can't afford to pass it over and leave it lightly. Lord, thank you for this, this time we spent together. Uh, Bless us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.